Welcome to Subtext and Discourse. I'm your host, Michael Dooney. A lot has happened in the last month since the previous episode went online. However, before I attempt to provide some relief from current events, I want to mention that the interview in today's episode was recorded on the 14th of February, 2020, four weeks before the current reality in which we're now living. That being said, it was a pleasure as always to catch up with Berlin-based photomedia artist Boris Eldarkson. I've known Boris for many years now, and in fact interviewed him way back in 2014 when we presented his work in a group exhibition about typologies. At the time, he was exploring a new way of working, and a conversation more or less picks up from where we left off almost six years ago. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy listening to myself in conversation with Boris Eldarkson. So we are actually recording right now, yeah? Yeah, we're recording now. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe we need an introduction in, in, in what I do before we talk about the installation because it's somehow related. In, in my photography, um, I'm, I'm not depicting what everybody sees. I want to show something that you can't see. I want to create images on a psychological level. And I only work at nighttime. The work slowly developed over years, and at some point, um, when there was an interest to show the work, I knew that I did not want to show it in a conventional way. It's all framed in the same style, that it's hanging in a line, that you can walk from left to right, and that's it. I wanted people to move differently in an exhibition. And one way to do so is to have very small and very large formats mixed so you have to come closer and to move back again around that time it became also affordable to produce your own wallpaper mm-hmm. and then to cover walls and that was the first experiment and everybody was um, loving the huge wallpaper which was very cheap in production cost that time and i had tiny images museums class that were very expensive <laughs> in production costs but people liked the wallpaper and I did love it too. And so from there it started. Now, five years later, um, I'm doing more and more installations. I'm mixing two dimensions, three dimensions. I'm not only printing on wallpaper. I also print on um, flag material on canvas and I do projections on objects. It, it grows continuously. So what was... Because even thinking about yeah, when we sat here a while back, you've been exhibiting since 2005 and 2014 was when you were just exploring this new thing. Was there a catalyst that made this kind of shift off in a different direction? Because well, how was your work prior to that? But it was certainly more within the refines of or the, the parameters of what photographers are allowed to do or artists working with photography are expected. I, I did uh, some series... Um, at daytime, they were mostly poetic. Some had been ironic. But the work was never shown. There was no interest in my photo. There was interest in my video work. And with video, I also wanted to do immersive spaces. I had a huge exhibition in Sydney in the Australian Center of Photography where I created a room that was made out of four-wall projections. So there's a connection to what I do today with immersive spaces. But there was no interest in that uh, my photography. And then I started with night photography in 2008 on a regular basis in Australia. And it developed from there. And then suddenly the first people who loved the work through portfolio reviews 
had been a wow festival in Arles. They helped me a lot because um, Christophe Lallois, the director, realized that at that time I was not able to get the full potential of the work out in the presentation. And he invited me to, to fly over to, to Arles and they also have a printing business and we could be tried out different papers, different formats. And he was very in, encouraging. Oh, wow. When was that? Um, that was 2014 yeah, because I won the War of Award in 2013 and attached to it was an exhibition in the following year. And that was my first proper room installation. And with every exhibition, I'm trying out something new. Was that the first time you'd been at a big festival? Or you'd done a few in Australia and other places? No, I, I got very late into the festival world. I was very hesitant to participate in portfolio reviews. You know, I, I, I lived for a long time between Australia and Germany, and I was more moving in the contemporary art world, not in the photography world, because I considered myself, and I still, I, I'm an artist working with photography. Quite late, I got rec a recommendation by two curators uh, I really like to do portfolio reviews, and I did at mm -hmm. some point. When I returned to Germany, I said, okay, let's try out new things. Then I realized that people either love or hate my work. And the, the ones who loved it, they truly loved it. And that was also Christophe Lara, and he was pushing me to enter the award competition and I won it. It was something I would have not expected. I did like the whole portfolio review festival thing and everything I do today came out of participating in festivals. I was touring them regularly yeah. on a very professional basis, <laughs> doing as many portfolio reviews as possible. Also oh, showing your work to different people and traveling around. Yes, I still go every year to Arles and I go every year to Paris Photo. And I do festivals when I'm invited. No, I think as well, I probably, until I was involved with the gallery and yeah, I guess meeting people like yourself, underestimated the importance of festivals and even the opportunities that I think that they can offer as far as getting out there and showing your work. A lot of it is about being connected to the right people and meeting the right people. And it is. And being the, the, in the scene somehow. <laughs> the funny part is that you meet those people, like especially from the Berlin scene, mostly outside of Berlin. Yes. <laughs> like Thorsten was introduced to me in Portugal by mutual friends from Cologne. And that ha happened very often. Actually, I met the people from the AFF gallery in Arles. I'd never met them at the AFF gallery, which is like a kilometer from my house. Yeah, you meet everybody in yeah. Arles. That's the beauty about it. And they come from the photography world. They come from the art world. For me, the first week of July is set uh, on mm -hmm. day. Talking about other festivals, I know you were in India a few times. I seem to think you were in Singapore, but I could be mistaken. I was in Singapore. I was at the Hyderabad Festival. I was in Bangladesh at the Shobi Mela. I can recommend all of them. They have different aspects. But the Shobi Mela Festival in Bangladesh is one of the most impressive I have seen. Mm -hmm. uh, you would have not expected this to happen in Bangladesh, but it's run by a photography school, Pathshala, which was founded by a very charismatic photographer and political activist, Shaidul Alam. And he built it out on scratch over 30, 40 years. It's like a Bauhaus atmosphere. His former students are now the teachers. And part of the curriculum is to do that festival in the middle of that South Asian chaos. Wow. It's wonderful work. It's strong work that comes out of there. I was there as a guest. I was lecturing. I was doing workshops. It would be a dream for me to um, work 
and teach at a school like this, probably not in Dhaka. Okay. How do they differ then to the ones in um, conventional Europe? Most festivals just use abandoned spaces mm -hmm. plus galleries and most festivals run on a shoot string budget and with volunteers. And the festivals, many festivals just burn their volunteers year after year. So there is no knowledge transfer. There are some festivals that work differently, like the one in Poland in which it's really like mm. a community that has been doing it over years. And Shopimela is this community with school. So there is no loss in knowledge transfer. So they really know how to set it up. The installation was one of the best I ever had at the festival. As a photographer, you experience many strange things happening at festivals that works are not shown like agreed, that some images are missing, that the size is wrong, that the framing is wrong, that your name tag is missing, that, and so on and so on. We as Europeans don't expect like a festival in Bangladesh to be run on such a professional level. Mm. But it was the most professional festival I've been to. Uh, possibly, I, I don't have any insights in the workings of Rencontre, but Shobimela impressed me. What was your favorite festival? One for me that still really stands out is the photo month in Krakow. Mm -hmm. That one I really enjoyed. But I've never been to Woods, so if I went there, it would be sort of difficult for me to, to compare. But I think even my exposure to a lot of the photography from Eastern Europe, and I guess if you go further east, like to India and places like that, they're a lot less reserved about taking risks and trying different things. And they're also quite welcoming, I found, when I went there as well. Everybody's really open to showing you things and introducing people to one another. Like There is a really strong community atmosphere. I know a lot of people criticize yeah, the art world and photography world in general for being exclusive and on a, these people don't mix with those people. But I think for most of the festivals in general that I've either participated in or just visited, well, everyone is there for the same reason. So I guess you yes. already have that. I, I only had positive experiences in the photography community. They are welcoming and you introduce yourself. I did not experience things like this in the art community. I think competition is higher and, and in photography, it's more welcoming. This is what I like about it. And this is why I go to festivals because you meet friends from all around the globe that you could not afford to visit. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and then you just meet like twice a year in, in France. This year will be my fourth year, I think, fourth or fifth. So you're going to art this year? That's the plan, yeah. I was on the other side of the table last yeah. year and the year before looking at work. It's good to have you here because um, I'm going to make a pop-up exhibition in the opening week. I'm flying to our next week. Oh, next week already, okay. <laughs> um, checking the location. It's, it's very complex if you want to, to do something in art because everybody wants to do something. And I think it's not just that. What I realized maybe last year or speaking to other people that often go there is that I think within the region, when one festival finishes, another one starts. So there's like a constant rotation of different events and things taking place. It does, but um, the, the main problem is to find the right space and you need a French person to do so. So I was teaming up with a, a curator friend who that time lived in Marseille and she found an amazing space, which is in the center. It's between the Place de la République and then when you go to the Van Gogh uh, mm -hmm. space, that kind of like shopping lane, there it is yeah, in the oh, basement. Okay. could be very visual. It's, it's like a Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole. And I'm going to make a 360 degree installation with my collaborative work with uh, Tanvir Taulat from Bangladesh. And right now I'm, I'm working towards, so I have the space now. I need to go there to see 
the architecture. Yeah. And then it's made to measure and the work is produced. And then we try to make it as big as possible. I have a trying to get a curator friend in to make events every evening in the rabbit hole. I asked Roger Ballen if he would ask a little text for the exhibition and oh, he said cool. yes. So many things come together. So we try to create kind of bus. If you want to meet me this year in R, you just come there. Go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, you ah. follow the posters and the yeah. stickers, it's going to be everywhere. Yeah, I wanted to bring up Roger Ballen anyway, so I'm glad that you did. Because I feel like he had a huge influence on how you work and changed how you work. When I asked before about what was the catalyst of change, I wonder if Roger Barlin and his approach, so his philosophy of making images, was what triggered you to shift direction. Yes and no. I first saw his work in a Hamburg exhibition. I think it was 2006. It was amazing. I think I stayed two and a half hours in the exhibition. I watched the whole movies and I've never seen anything like it. And it had an effect on Because that was parallel to your work being shown in the Deutsche Tor Hallen. Yes. The, the awards that it... Yes, um, that, 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 that was a lucky incident. Yeah. I've been following him, his work since and he's one of the people I truly admire. His work is different from what I do. It's oh, like visually, aesthetically, yeah, completely different. The background to it is very close. He studied uh, psychology. He is a Jungian, I would say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been talking to him about this. But we, we, we can come to this later. I studied philosophy. And after my philosophy studies, I was more exploring than the border to psychology or anything obscure. And when I started photographing at night, I did not know what I was doing. I was Mm -hmm. just doing it and I continued and continued. And after three or four years, I went to a Chinese garden, botanical garden, where they had a huge like explanation about the philosophical background, about yin and yang and all the yin and yang elements. And I realized that my work is full of yin elements. It was like 90% yin, okay. like the night, the moon, the female, the sea, and so it goes. And I thought, how can this be? <laughs> what does it mean? And so I was researching uh, the meaning of yin from a Western understanding. And then you end up with Jung. And for Jung, yin was the unconscious side of us and Yang was the conscious side. And I thought, okay, if I have all of this unconsciously in my work anyhow, and if this is what it's all about, maybe I go deeper. And this is also what Roger wants to do. Mm-hmm. He's looking for something primal. So that the underlying reason for what he does and for what I does is very related. He feels like an uncle. Six years ago, I did participate in a workshop with him. I think it was 2014 in Ireland. And we had a good connection and he liked the work. And then we just lost contacts. And I re-met him last summer when he was giving a workshop in Berlin. And uh, I then became his assistant and we reconnected. I'm working for him since. Oh, really? I don't know if you know, know this. <laughs> no, I didn't know you were working for him. I knew that you'd assisted him, but I didn't know you were kind of in favor of his I was working for him this morning and yesterday, and I had a conversation with him on uh, WhatsApp on Sunday. So you didn't meet him or you didn't reconnect in how many years ago? When he had the House of the Balanesque and all? I, I loved the House of the Balanesque. I went to the interview. There were so many people. Oh, I really no time. Yeah. And, and then I know it myself. You meet so many people to connect the face and the name. Yeah. I often struggle and then I changed my look. I was a fake blonde before and now I'm a bold old man. So, but uh, Roger always has as part of his workshop, 
lecture on marketing, mm-hmm. how to sell yourself. And for the last 20 years, I'm also working as a freelancer in digital marketing. So he realized that I know more about this than he does. And then he asked me if I would like to be something like coach for social media. And I was uh, coaching his assistant. I was helping him. I did documentation, pictures, boomerangs of the last two big shows he had in Paris and in Brussels. I became part of that wandering circus. Uh, Many of the pictures you see in his Instagram feed are some of those documentary pictures I did. And I also did the stories that you find as a story arc. Whenever there's something that needs to be sorted out, I I'm helping him and do it, but he and his assistant, they learn quickly. So at some point, I don't know if he will need me again. But it changes pretty quickly. Yes, I think about it, when it I, does change. When I started using Instagram seven or eight years ago, yeah. and compare it to now, it's a totally different landscape. It, it is, yeah. It has pros and cons, but you can't do without. I like doing it and doing this for Roger is like a dream job. Yeah, no, that's pretty nice. Also spending the time with him on a regular basis and um, asking him questions. And we have been talking about all the things, uh, something that I would have never expected to happen. He's one of the friendliest, most knowledgeable, interesting people I've met. He's truly reliable. Yeah, he always answers. He's very polite. I, I can only say positive things about him. He's great. Yeah. I mean, I've only met him briefly and he's a really warm, open person. If I compare him to a lot of other big artists that I've met, they're all reliable. They're easy to get along with. And I think it kind of dispels this myth of you have to be <laughs> difficult to work with and everything else to be really successful. It's like, no, you have to be really professional. When you first started doing the poems, kind of going back to your work before, you were collecting images that you responded to for no no conscious reason. So it's like when we see something, we go, wow, I really like that. Why do you like it? I don't know. This is something within me that says, I like this. And uh, then yeah, yeah, yeah. having this exchange between a person that you're going to take a portrait of, they would also engage with images. And then this automatic response would then create a dialogue unconsciously or subconsciously I still do it for portraits. Yeah. But I have only been doing it for portraits. It's, okay. it's like a bingo with pictures that I collected that had an impact on me on, on an unconscious level. And then um, I make a selection for my model and they send back the images that have an effect on them. So that's, is that for your commissions that you do? Or? Yes, that's for the portraits I do with people. But I have many different ways of working. Like for my solo work, I do those stage portraits, mm-hmm. but I also go out at places that have something that I'm interested in and then I hijack the place. Mm-hmm. It means I do street photography without street photography. <laughs> A street photographer would be interested in showing that this is Michael sitting in Berlin doing an interview. Yeah. And I would try to transform this that we don't see it's Michael, we don't see it's Berlin, and we don't really see what you are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And it becomes more timeless. And that, that's my way of working solo. For three years now, I have this collaborative work with Tanmir from Bangladesh. It's called The Other Side. And we don't photograph anymore. No? <laughs> <laughs> I have a huge archive that I'm still cleaning up. And he has also an archive. So we upload the images on Google Drive, download, and then we, yeah, <laughs> we have a variety of different processes. 
it's like alchemy. We destroy and we put together again, mostly analog. And at the end, we have a photograph as a result. In between, it is everything. Painting, it's sculpture, it's drawing, it's destroying, it's performance. It's a new way of working that I really like. It creates images that you could not do otherwise and could not be repeated. Many people come and ask, how is it done? And then my response is, nobody knows. It sounds cheeky, but it's not because I know my part of the work. Tanvir knows his part. I have a slight idea of what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> but one image can go through multiple processes. And because I only know what I do and Tanvir knows what he does to the image, nobody fully knows what has been done and nobody would be able to repeat it as a single person. That's why I really like collaborations, yeah. even for myself, like working with another person, because either side of the partnership will see something that triggers the other person, which then responds back to the initial yeah. person. And then you create something that neither of you would have been able to generate in isolation. I don't know, you needed the exchange to happen between the thoughts for this to come about. I think for artists it's good, but isn't collaboration a bad thing for gallerists? Because then you have like two people to deal with. And then you never know if that collaboration is going to last or not. A creative collaboration. When you're generating ideas, when you're writing songs, yes. creating work, developing new ideas. I think that's when sometimes two heads are better than one. If you're directing something or if you're yes. driving something in a specific yeah. direction, then it can be difficult because you often have two different ways that it's been. I know, but I was asking like the perspective of a gallery owner. Yeah? Uh -huh. If you choose artists to work with, mm -hmm. would you prefer to choose with single artist or a duo or a group of artists? Is it more complicated? Is it easier to work with one person? I mean, it's always easier to work with one person. <laughs> I think what, irrespective of whatever the relationship is, even if you try to take it out of the gallery context and say you have a group of friends and you're trying to plan where you want to go, if you're dealing with one person, you say, we're going to go here, it's going to be a lot easier than somebody else saying, oh, but I want to go there for lunch or... I don't like that place or oh, then I'll have to bring my coat and I don't want to wear my jacket today. Yeah. You've got more people to please, then it's, you know, then it can be difficult. Your answer is very diplomatic. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I'm going to ask again. Um, as a gallerist, you also have different perspective mm -hmm. than an artist. Uh, the artists, they just have ideas, they want to do it. Uh, but as a gallerist, you're, you're, you're selling the work of an artist, you're selling mm -hmm. a brand. And uh, you in invest in this and you want this to grow. And then if you see like your, your artist, he's not producing his solo work that you could sell, but he wants to do collaborations with other mm -hmm. people. Isn't that a problem? In the traditional sense, I would say, yes, it is a problem. I mean, galleries are their most basic uh, shops that sell art. So if you don't have any products, you can't sell anything. We both know that the art world and the gallery system is a bit more than just moving things around. I know for me personally anyway, like with some of the exhibitions that we've had, sometimes we didn't have things that were sellable, but it was more about procuring community and generating a dialogue, helping people see things that they'd not seen otherwise. I think with quite a lot of other galleries as well that maybe are less committed to the solo show every few months from a different art, from you know an artist on their roster. And I think this happens in a lot of industries where you have your major artists, they're the ones that generate the revenue and then allow the younger artists or artists that are outside of the market maybe to bring something new and present it that wouldn't have the opportunity to otherwise. 
I think definitely now with lots of funding cuts and projects that don't necessarily have a, a financial or a market interest, it's only when we're measuring things in economics that it becomes an issue. If you're not looking at it in terms of how much money is that going to generate, then it's not a problem from, from my point of view. Yes, true. But yeah, I think as a gallerist, you, you have this financial perspective more than most artists. I think artists and galleries have a lot more in common than I think we realize. Because I know a lot of artists say, I should be able to live from my art. I mean, I think that's a, a fantasy. There's probably, I don't know, half a dozen people that can purely live from their art and not do anything else. And I think for a lot of galleries, it's the same. That they can only sell work and then that's what keeps them in business. They have to trade on the secondary market, teach or do lectures publish books, they have to advise, they have to do a lot of other different things to maintain their presence in the marketplace. From the outside, it might seem that all you're doing is selling paintings or photographs or whatever. I don't like the word entrepreneur, but if you're a sole trader or if you're an independent person, you often have to diversify. You can't just rely on one income source. You need to have different ways that you can maintain what you're doing because some things are going to be a lot more lucrative than others, but you want to do the other things that don't bring in any money. So you have to do other things that generate more to support the other ones, which from an artist's point of view, I think you're probably a good example of that because you have your artistic practice, but like you said, you do digital marketing, do you do teaching, teaching yeah. you do workshops. A lot of artists don't appreciate this or they fail to realize if you have a trade, like if you're a photographer or if you're a painter, or if you're a writer, it's not a bad thing to sell that service. Like people need that. And if you can offer that, that people can purchase, then you can produce your art and you're less compromised. I don't know if you've read Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees, 30 Years of Conversations with Conceptual Artist Robert Irwin. I mean, I remember the quote from him particularly, but a lot of other big artists have said this as well. Don't expect to make money from your art or don't make your art to make money because as soon as you do that, you'll be compromised. I don't know if he's the best example because he used to gamble, like he used to make his money on the horse racing. <laughs> but then, then he could do immersive installations. He could experiment with light and space and he didn't have to worry about, can I sell a room? It's ephemeral. Once you take the exhibition away, it doesn't exist anymore. And that's why people like James Terrell have to make objects that they can sell because you can't buy a canyon or one of his spaces. Although well, can you get, maybe you can, I don't know actually. If you can commission one of his sky domes. It should be possible if you have enough money. But um, I agree that what you do should be um, unrestricted uh, by any expectations. I always kept it like this. and I never earned money with photography. Like many of my colleagues do commercial photographic work. I always refused. I didn't want this to mix. But um, I'm selling my creativity. And then I have a different task. It's like a creativity training for me. I have... Yeah, how is your workflow, actually? I didn't even think to ask you this. Which workflow? Which, which of my many <laughs> workflows? <laughs> no, in general, though, like this is a... I guess this is a good opportunity at the insight of somebody that has purely independent as a practitioner, as an artist. How do you structure and manage all these different projects? I think the main challenge is not to do too many things because then you create your own stress. This really is difficult. You have ideas, you, you have projects, you have many things working parallel and this never stops. You are here tomorrow and next week and so on. And I have to force myself not to follow this idea mm -hmm. and to finish what I have been doing before. That's a lot of self-discipline and having all other jobs and commercial jobs on the side limits the amount of time that you have for your art practice. Then you can try to Try out different systems that you say, I just do commercial job on Mondays and I 
or free work on <laughs> Tuesdays, or you start in the morning um, with your own artwork and do commercial jobs in the afternoon or vice versa or mix it all. I'm, I'm still trying to find the best combination. But personally, for me, it is a little bit frustrating. I would like to have more time to do um, my art projects. Because they're time intensive? They're time intensive and um, some things need to sit. And some, how can I say? Right now I have a backlog in many video project I have been doing and shooting. To edit video is time intense. Yeah? And then all the post-production, the sound. I'm, I'm trying to finish a video I've shot in 2018 in October. And I've shot like six videos last year in October. And they are all in the pipeline. And uh, the same time I have to prepare all now and mm -hmm. concentrate on this. I started a new work uh, last year in photography, completely new aesthetic and approach. This has to wait and so on and so on. Yeah. Uh, and then I need to get, I need to get the funding uh, for all to happen mm -hmm. because to do this all on your own expenses is quite a lot of money Yeah, for the creator, for the rent, for the production, for the marketing, go there, stay there for two weeks. Easily, it can sum up to a lot of money. And so I also need time to see if I can get some funding from Berlin, from state, from EFR, whatever, if I can get sponsors, and I'm going to do a crowdfunding campaign. All of this needs time. Yeah. And all of this needs to be taken away from the time that I produce my work because I can't take it away from the job that pays the rent. And that's the, the, the frustrating part because you need to get your work out and you need to do your own marketing and sponsoring. And Have you ever outsourced any of that kind of thing? If you outsource it, you need to pay for it. Yeah. And then you need to do more commercial jobs to pay for it. <laughs> it's a catch-22. <laughs> yeah, catch um, yeah, it's... Um, they only have to has 24 hours and you, you, you need to have, you want to have a break and to meet friends and do something else. <laughs> to sleep. At, at some point you can just surrender and say, okay, I'm doing as much as I can. It's important to enjoy what you do and everything else comes or doesn't come. And for me now, this, this possibility in AL is something where many things fall into one place and I just do it. And then after that, I see where I, Going, if it's going to lead me somewhere or nowhere but I want to have fun with it and I want to go wild I mean it sounds like it's come full circle because if Al was the main spot where it began in terms of going to war off and then getting the interest in the project and then growing it from there from doing the portfolio reviews yeah. and now you're presenting it in Al years later it, it, well everything happens in Al yeah? and this is going to continue I'm not part of the official program I'm doing my own stuff and I want to create tension. And you can do it in art. Everybody tries to do and part of the anarchy that makes the place so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been watching this for eight years now and I think I know how to do it. Maybe briefly then with marketing and promotion, trying to get sponsorship. For me, that was nothing I ever grew up with. And I think even when I came over to Germany and I was at the university and people had got scholarships, oh, wow, you can get a scholarship. If I'd applied before I left, I probably could have got money from the Goethe Institute, but I had no idea that such a thing was even a possibility. It was never taught at my art school at university. I've studied in Mainz. I did a semester in India, one in Prague at the Art Academy. Nobody talked about this. Mm -hmm. There was no support. Today, 
it's a subject which is taught. Oh, it is okay. Yeah, at, at many schools, which is a positive thing for me. That was just a question mark. Yeah, and my professor had no success. He didn't know how to do it. Um, there's a story where he got his portfolio and he was flying to New York and he was going from one gallery to the next and he failed. And for him, he was frustrated. And when you ask him about how to apply for a commercial gallery, he says, ah, oh, it's terrible. <laughs> and there was no help. And today I could say, of course he failed. Yeah. yeah. So you just try out things. You realize it's not working or that was a bad idea. And then you try again. And Natasha, an Australian artist, we had a relationship for many years. We did one time in Australia teach a seminar on how not to try to enter <laughs> the art market because you can give more recommendations on how not to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what definitely yeah, is what going to, to fail than what to do. But are you with the gallery then? Or are you represented? Or do you go from space to space? I guess, what is your position? I work currently with Luisa Catucci in, in, in Berlin and Karl Oscar Gallery as well. There are different ways of doing it. When I started, it, it was more like going to the openings, talking to the people, making research, trying to find a gallery in which portfolio you fit in, getting somehow become a familiar face. And then be frank. I just say, what do I need to do yeah, to be represented by? And then often they, they say, well, I don't take any new artists. <laughs> or they say, well, I have to look at your work. And then this is the first step. So that's how it started in the, in the beginning. Do you think that it's still necessary now compared to, say, 15 years ago when you were first sort of... Well, the last galleries I was approached. Since, since I'm living in Berlin, the art gallery scene has changed so much. Many galleries just open and close and there are only a few survivors. And so, so also it happened with me. Many of the galleries I work with just did close. And then you start from scratch. How relevant is it now then for an artist to be represented by a gallery or within the gallery before when you asked me about from a commercial perspective or from a gallerist's point of view, if you're a, a duo and you're making work that isn't sellable, how do you facilitate that? Or what do you want people to take away from these experiential rooms that you're building? It's uh, an impact that it's somehow stuck in the back of their mind that they don't know why, but it doesn't leave them. If an artwork does something like this to you, you already bring something to the work that is in the work. There is a relationship, there's a closeness, it speaks about something that you have experienced or thought. Seeing the artwork is just a trigger for that emotion or flashback. And I want to create triggers like this. Last night I was in an exhibition opening at the Helmut Newton Foundation, Birgit uh, Kleber, many portraits of the German movie scene all photographed in the same style and you know the names and uh, forgot most of the pictures. Yeah. <laughs> so th there are different ways of working and different way, different, different targets. The way I work, it's not related to a story or certain time and space. What I want to do is something that is timeless. And this is why my work was called poems mm -hmm. show. It's much more open and you need to finish that. And it's also open to different cultures. Like it, it works in countries with diverse world religions. That's no problem to go to a Muslim country or to a Hindu country or to a Christian country. They all get something out of it. I think that is why I do art. And if people love it so much that they would like to have it and buy it, 
it's plus. I'm not creating product in a marketing capitalistic sense. Artwork is finished when it's finished and it has no specific target group, <laughs> no age group. It doesn't want to convince you of something. It's just there and either it triggers a response in you or it doesn't. And when it doesn't, there's nothing I can do about it. I hope you enjoyed hearing the insight into Boris's process and unique way of producing images. There are links in the description below to his website, social media and various subjects that we discussed. Providing that the photography festival in Arles does still take place this year, I hope you can visit and experience Boris's immersive room installation during the opening week. I've also been invited back to review portfolios as part of the official program, so if all goes well, you will see me there too. In the meantime, please follow us on social media, link below, to keep up to date. As always, I appreciate the feedback everyone is sending in, so please feel free to write or leave a comment. Thanks for listening. Please look after yourselves and take care of those around you. My name's Michael Dooney, and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.